Hello, and welcome back to the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on the Indo-Pacific and the fate of the world. I'm Michael Misha Oslin, the Payson J. Treat Fellow in Contemporary Asia at the Hoover Institution, and I am joined by my sparkling commentator in crime, John Yu, visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and professor of law at UC Berkeley. John, say hello to everyone. Hello, everybody, and hello, Misha. It's great to be with you again. It is great to be back with you. We have a a jam-packed action-filled program today for everyone, and we're going to jump right into it. We're going to cover a few different things. So just to let folks know what we're doing uh, on this podcast, we have an interview with our colleague and friend and the former National Security Advisor to the President of the United States, H.R. McMaster. We are going to talk about the brand new news about President Trump's threat to levy 25% tariffs on Chinese goods starting Friday of this week. We are going to visit something that hasn't happened for 30 years, the enthronement of a Japanese emperor, and talk about what that means uh, to Japan, postmodern land with an ancient monarchy. And then finally, we're just going to touch on another very notable anniversary that just passed uh, over the weekend, which is the centenary, the centennial of the May 4th movement in China. So we've got a lot to cover We're going to jump right into it and start with HR. Uh, John, turn it over to you. Thanks, Misha. And it's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, welcome to the podcast, HR McMaster, who is now the Fuad and Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's one of our uh, most distinguished uh, scholar warriors, as we tend to call them these days. Uh, He, uh, as a young captain, led one of the uh, Great tactical engagement, tank engagements in the Persian Gulf War, uh, uh, an encounter that's still studied and taught at uh, military academies around the world where he led a brilliant attack on the Iraqi Republican Guard. He then uh, returned to Iraq as a commander in between uh, to win the scholar part of the Scholar Warrior title, he wrote, I think, one of the great books about civil-military relations as his PhD dissertation at uh, UNC, uh, which is now – you can buy it and read it. I have. I, I think a lot of people should. It's called Dereliction of Duty, and it's a study of the fighting between the civilian leadership and military officers during the Vietnam War. Uh, HR then became most recently and uh, I think before he came to Hoover Institution uh, was the National Security Advisor uh, where he led a, an overhaul in the strategic approach of the United States towards the world and uh, really restored focus on to great power politics and our rivalry with nations such as China and Russia. I regret to say that because of technical difficulties, we – uh, we've lost the first few minutes of the interview, so we're going to pick up uh, our discussion with HR uh, kind of in midstream. But I hope you all uh, enjoy it, and then afterwards we're going to come back with our discussion of China and trade and the Japanese emperor and the centennial of the May 4th incident. HR, again, thanks for joining the show. And before we turn directly to China and also your revamp, of the U.S. national security strategy, which refocused on great power competition. Let me ask you to start by discussing uh, what lessons did you bring from your study 
of the failures of U.S. policymaking in Vietnam when you assume the job of national security advisor yourself? We put actually uh, a new meeting in, you know, that uh, we actually reduced significantly the numbers of meetings. But what we had for each of these major challenges to national security is a framing session up front to try to understand these challenges uh, on their own terms, to understand these challenges in historical and cultural and, and economic context of them as, as well. And so we asked you know, first order questions. You know, what, what is the nature of this challenge? Uh, and, and, and then we also viewed our, our answer to that through the lens of our vital interests, crafted overarching goals and more specific objectives, and then, and then made some assumptions that oftentimes are implicit and fundamentally flawed in our, in, in our strategic documents. So we try to make all of our planning assumptions explicit so they can be challenged. And those, those assumptions had to do mainly with the degree to which the United States and other like-minded partners, other nations, allies, and so forth, but, but also partners in the private sector, the degree of agency and control we had over this complex problem. And so that was what we started with. And then we had a discussion about ways, ways we can help combine elements of our national power, you know, diplomatic, informational, military, economic, law enforcement, financial, um, and, 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 and also combine those with efforts of like-minded partners to, to shift, you know, to, to shift toward our, the situation toward our objectives and begin to make progress. I, you know, I think we did that pretty effectively with, with the intention of providing options to the president. And the, you asked what I learned from my research on the Vietnam War and from, from the, the book Dereliction of Duty. What I learned really more than anything is I, mean, I cannot think of a case in which providing a president with fewer options was better than presenting a president with multiple options mm. because it's in the discussion of those options and the relative advantages and disadvantages and, and risks and mitigating measures that, that you can really understand better what, 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 is the, what, is the best, what is the best option to advance and protect our, our interests. So I, I think we did that effectively. Of course, our government can always improve, but the area that I think that is essential is this area of coordinating and integrating across our departments and agencies, so, and, and, and also have a strategic foundation for what we're doing. These strategies are important uh, because it, when an event happens, and it, we, you don't want to just react to that discrete event, you want to be able to re review and, and, and see that event in context of what you're trying to achieve overall, and think about, well, how do I torque this event? How do I, how do I bend our, the, the situation you know, in response to it toward our longer term goals and objectives. Well, let me so let me uh, close out because we're almost uh, done with our time with you. I'm sorry to say. Um, do you think that uh, we can pursue this strategy uh, given the rhythms of American politics and elections? And, and let me just sort of focus it more tightly on uh, the relationship between economics and elections and this longer-term strategy because uh, there's a lot of talk in the press that there's a lot of pressure on President Trump and his advisors to reach a trade deal with China to, in order to have the economy in a good place for his re-election effort next year. But that might run uh, counter or be inconsistent with some of the longer-term strategies you're talking about because a good trade deal could actually make China stronger and allow them to you know, divert even more resources to the military it may not 
be the case that the long term we want the exact kind of trade deal which might be in the best interest for the political short term. Does that worry you at all or how do you solve that kind of contradiction between – not contradiction, but tension between longer term strategy and the more short term cycles that are demanded by our electoral system and especially for the economy to perform well? Yeah, I think I think what's most important is to, is to think long term, and to to have these agreed objectives, and to always you know, really re- revisit those ob- objectives at the outset of any conversation. Now, I think on on the the trade deal or prospects of it, you know, I think what's been encouraging to me is has been Ambassador Lighthizer's emphasis on enforcement, and I think there's a recognition that that really the the Chinese Communist Party has promised a lot of things in the past, and and delivered on very little. I mean, some would say zero of their promises, especially promises made upon entry into the World Trade Organization. So I, I think that I, I think there's there's a, there is a healthy degree of skepticism, a recognition that in, enforcement of any trade deal is critical. And that that any kind of a, a trade deal that does not address the structural issues involved in the the theft and forced transfer of intellectual property uh, or or the 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 competitive disadvantage that, that that our companies and workers are in based on on Chinese subsidies to state owned and and other uh, companies, uh, I think. Uh, you know, I don't think the the president is going to take that deal. I mean, I, I really don't. So I, I I think that there are a lot of people uh, make uh, make a lot uh, really talk or focus on on the impact of domestic politics. I think it's quite possible that that uh, that Chinese Communist Party leaders misread President Trump earlier and thought it was going to be easy, you know, just to buy more soybeans or whatever, you know, and <laughs> and, 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 and so he could chalk up a win. It didn't work. I think maybe even Kim Jong-un thought when he went to Hanoi, mm. you know, that, hey, President Trump, I think, needs a, a domestic political victory. So I'll just ask him to relieve all the sanctions in response for, you know, blowing up one tunnel at Yongbon or whatever. And so mm-hmm. and that didn't work. And so I, I think, you know, I, I think that um, my experience has been that that, uh, that that those decisions will be based what is on on what is in our long-term interests. I mean, of course, we all hope that's the case, but I, I don't see any reason to think that there would be a compromise on these on these very important structural problems associated with really Chinese economic aggression uh, in in the context of this trade deal. That's uh, that's very interesting. So I we just have a few minutes. I feel like I've been hogging any time. So let me just kick it back to Misha for any uh, questions he wants to ask, and then. Uh, We'll wrap up, and we're really, uh, really appreciate. Let me just say, I'm very appreciative of the time you were able to spend with us, and it's been a real pleasure to talk uh, with you. But Misha, take it away. Ditto, uh, John, and everyone knows. Um, I think, in particular, what a great colleague HR is, uh, and which is not always the case with with folks who are coming into a very academic environment. And I think, you know, HR, if, if you'd be willing, um, maybe again, just a little bit to expand. I know it's a little bit about going back, but I know that people are going to be very, um, very interested uh, in your sense, really, quite frankly, of where the U.S.-China competition goes from here. Um, is it going to get worse? Uh, is it going to get better? Do you foresee a trade deal? Are we going to have a real mess up in the South China Sea? How do you, if you had to crystal ball it a little bit, what what would you say people should really be paying attention to, and what are you worried about? Well, that's that's a great question, and and Misha, the feels mutual. It's great to have you and 
and uh, John as colleagues in the, you know in the, in the Bay Area when you're out here. So, and it's great to have this conversation. I I think that that uh, there are a number of alternatives here, uh, alternative futures. What what we would hope is that that uh, Chinese Communist Party leadership will recognize that it's only by ending these unfair trade and economic practices and these aggressive actions such as in the South China Sea that China can realize, you know, the, you know, the China dream, that China, by playing by the rules, would benefit even more, you know, from the integrated global economy. And, but if they don't play by the rules, I think what China is facing is a recognition on the part of the world, not just the United States, the world, that China is not a trusted partner. And of course, that is there's no way that that can that can redound to the to the to China's benefit. I don't think China can go back, you know, at, at, to the to the time after the seven voyages, you know, when it when it concluded, right. hey, we we don't really need to be integrated with the world. You know, let the world come to us, right? And so I, I think that I think China has to to really make some tough choices now. The Chinese leadership does, and and that will determine the the course of events in the future. I do think that competition is the best way to avoid confrontation. I think the path that we were on of strategic engagement, the benign approach to Chinese economic aggression and military uh, aggression, the South China Sea, for example, the use of the, of the maritime militias and the Senkakus, lots of examples. I think we were on a path to, to confrontation because China, I think, had concluded that, that we were going to be benign and allow them uh, to get away with this aggressive action. I think China now knows that, that there are limits to, to this kind of strategic activity of probing that they were conducting. Now, what, what is also possible is that China will conclude that, hey, we, we can't change the structure of our economy. We can't move uh, toward, uh, away from this, this authoritarian capitalist system. If that's the case, I think they're potentially in for some hard times economically. Uh, and, and as a result, you could see this vicious cycle of not meeting the expectations of the population the tightening of the control of the surveillance police state in, in China and potentially a more aggressive foreign policy. And I think that's the, the danger we have to be prepared for. We being our, ourselves and our, and our, certainly our treaty allies uh, across the Indo-Pacific, uh, but, but, our, but our, our partners in like-minded countries uh, globally. And, but I think we, we all, all ought to do what we can in, in, a, in multinational fora to convince China to take the, the, what we would describe as the right path toward toward playing by the rules, you know, toward you know, not stealing our secrets anymore uh, and, and gaining an unfair advantage economically uh, and applying that, that technology to its military buildup. You know, not, not thinking that they can own the ocean, for example, right? Nobody right. owns the ocean. And so Actually, I think can I, just, can I, I think jump these, in there? These clear I've, messages. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I just have one last question. We're entering sure. your time, but I, I really wanted to ask you this question. You just uh, kind of raised it. So, you know, you've been you've been operating at the highest levels of strategy, but you also taught uh, history and strategy at West Point as a professor. And you were uh, people who know this. You were, you know, like the tip of the sphere. One of the great tactical victories of the United States in the tank battles in the Iraq War. So I want you to put on your sort of tactician hat for a second, uh, which you probably haven't done in a little while. But um, and you're a landlubber. But I want to ask you a question about the waters. How do you get the Chinese out of the South China Seas? So, you know, the, I, I just, I, how, if you were just, you know, you were the local commander and you had to work on how to move them off from this 
aggressive forward position they've staked out. How, how do you do it in this world with new kinds of weapons and technology and so all the other tools you have available? How would you how would you do it? I think this I don't know. I get the feeling nobody knows what to do. So what would you do if you were out there in command? Well, there's been there's been a lot of focus on this for a long time, right? And this is the so-called A2 AD like the anti-access area denial capabilities of the Chinese yes. that is that is augmented by these reclamation efforts which, by the way, are destroying you know whole ecosystems. I mean, I, I would like to mobilize. I think Greenpeace. Yeah, let's get Greenpeace warrior right. in there. Totally. I mean, it's, it's really. I mean, it's terrible what the Chinese have done. Uh, to Look, the, the French. To the, the French there. couldn't stop the Greenpeace warrior. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but I I think I think um, I I think that if you have capable, forward positioned, joint forces, which mean land, maritime aerospace, cyberspace-capable forces, those forces automatically turn denied space into contested space, right? And so that doesn't have to be U.S. forces, but it's, it's, it's forces of, of like-minded countries that can, will communicate by the capabilities they have to China that China cannot accomplish its objectives. This, this land grab, so to speak, as an army guy in the South China Sea is not going to work. And, and this is, this is good old fashioned Thomas Schelling deterrence by denial, right? Convincing your adversary that your adversary cannot accomplish his objectives through the use of force. And so I think you see, you see U.S. defense capabilities, uh, really are, are, are quite visible in the South China Sea in that connection. But you, increasingly, you see allied nations, including Japan, uh, as, as well as, 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 uh, as the United Kingdom and France. And then, of course, the countries that are, are most affected by it, you know, Philippi- the Philippines, Vietnam, uh, Taiwan. I think that the capabilities that they develop uh, can communicate to China, hey, hey listen, these, these islands are, could actually it, militarily be a real vulnerability for the Chinese more than an asset with the right combination of, of joint force capabilities that can be brought to bear if China was to commit an act of aggression. Mm. Yeah, it's like a big salient sticking out too far, and you're, you're talking about what you could actually could actually end up being cut off in the end if they put too many forces up there. Uh, it's a great point. Um, so, HR, we really appreciate that you spent the time with us, and uh, look forward to seeing you around the Hoover Institution. And good luck with your uh, work and your speeches and. Uh, bringing these issues to the attention of the American people. And I hope our uh, small podcast here can uh, go some way to promoting your views on this and uh, getting people more aware of these topics. So thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, John. And thanks, Misha. And Misha, I just read your book in draft. It's going to be great. It's a collection of essays that, uh, that, that Misha will have coming out here soon. And, uh, and it's really an excellent primer for many of the issues that we just discussed. So, oh, so thanks uh, so much, HR. Well, thanks to you guys, and and uh, have a great weekend, everybody, and great talking with you. You too. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Right, take care. Bye. 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 Well, HR, thank you again for just a wonderful overview, both of what you were doing when you were in the White House, uh, your view of where we stand today in the world, the challenges we face, and and really the the way that we have to think about having and maintaining a coherent foreign policy as we go forward. Uh, One of the things, of course, that H.R. dealt with uh, during his time was the looming trade war between China and the United States. 
Um, that's been slow boiling now for uh, close to the full two years uh, and more of the Trump presidency. But just over the weekend, President Trump threw a, a spanner into the works and in the middle of this very long uh, series of, of uh, negotiations that we've been having between our, our trading delegations, the president tweeted that starting this Friday, he would raise tariffs to 25% on another $300 billion worth of Chinese goods. John, what does this mean? Do you think it's going to happen? And where do we go from here? It's a really interesting uh, development, but I hope it leads to uh, nothing, that this is just a negotiating tactic. As you as you said, over uh, the weekend, just yesterday, on Sunday, in fact, President Trump threatened to raise tariffs on Chinese goods maybe up to another 25% uh, on the $325 billion in goods that still haven't been struck by these sanctions. Just so people remember, he already imposed tariffs on about $200 billion in imports. And so now he's talking about another 325 billion. Pretty soon it's going to be everything China sends here will be under some kind of tariff between 10 and 25%. Uh, uh, you know that's the only kind of step you would take uh, if you believe a trade deal was going to collapse, uh, and that we were going to try to start isolating China. Uh, one of the things we talked about with HR, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think what this is is a negotiating tactic. Uh, it's a way of reminding the Chinese uh, who are supposed to come to DC uh, this week to try to wrap up the trade negotiations what could happen. Uh, in, in a weird way, the United States and we were, has more leverage right now in the negotiations in China because China exports a lot more to the United States than we export to them. Plus, their economy is so built on exports uh, to drive growth that uh, shutting down Chinese trade – and then, of course, I assume we would turn to try to get our allies to impose high tariffs on Chinese trade too, could really uh, handicap the Chinese economy and destabilize uh, the regime. So I th on the other hand, you have uh, a situation here in our own economy where I think uh, getting a good trade deal with China would be key for President Trump's re-election hopes. I think if no trade deal is reached, I think the stock market here is going to go down quite a bit and you're going to see uh, the economy starting to enter slower growth, which no president wants in their election year. So just real quickly on the substance of the deal, apparently the big holdup is enforcement. Uh, the problem is that the Chinese have made promises in the past. Uh, they've not lived up to them, and there's nothing you can do uh, to enforce these uh, terms against China. So what uh, is particularly in the area of intellectual property, I think one of the most important areas where – uh, China has cheated in the past and where the United States wants a level playing field like the one we offer them here is uh, the right to protect our intellectual property uh, over there, the right not to have to transfer high technology secrets to Chinese companies as the price for doing business there and access – free access to all the markets uh, similar to what they're offered here. Uh, if China promises that, the tariffs come down and then suppose China cheats, what's the United States supposed to do? That's the sticking point. Uh, and I think uh, Trump's real, you know, the only real club the U.S. has here is the threat to reimpose tariffs again if there's more uh, cheating like there has been in the past. But I think there you can see the outlines of a deal. But this idea of how do you create an enforcement mechanism, this is not an easy question. This is actually something that 
bedevils international agreements of all types. So it's not a surprise that this is the final sticking point here. Wait, wait, what do you, what do you think, Misha? Well, I think you've I think you've laid it out well. Um, the the question I have, I guess, would be two. The first one is. Um, can Trump really back down? I mean, you, you started off by saying it was a, uh, a negotiating tactic, and we've had those, and clearly that's what's brought the, the Chinese to the table in the first place. And that's been very, you know, it's been very significant. Look, the Chinese have not walked away, and I think that's that's a key thing to keep in mind is that they take uh, Trump and his uh, uh, his threats credibly enough that they have actually come to the table. And of course, he did levy tariffs that range from 10 to 25 percent already on on Chinese goods. In fact, the ones that are now at 10 percent are is what he's saying will go up to 25 percent. Right. So there's 10 percent on 325 billion roughly uh, uh, worth of goods and about 25 percent on 250 billion. Um, but having done it in this way, I, I wonder if he is in a way backing himself into a corner, meaning you've really you know, you've really got to do this because the idea that you're going to get an agreement by Friday is, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's wishful thinking, but it, it certainly would be pretty light speed. Uh, or then you back down and and you lose that credibility. So it is high stakes. Look, no one ever said that the president didn't approach these things in a high stakes way. Um, so that's the first thing I would I would say, John. The second thing is that we are getting these reports, and it's hard to know how credible any of them are, that the administration has steadily been walking back from uh, a lot of the the really strong demands it was making on things that included, as you were talking about, intellectual property, but but other things as well, particularly Chinese support to uh, state-owned enterprises and and the like. So that what the administration is giving up, uh, according to some reports, we don't know if it's true, but if it is, if these are accurate, uh, then any type of agreement we're going to get will will have will essentially not be changing the base conditions for a lot of the things that we uh, brought to the table in the first place. And and again, if you have a combination here of the political cycle, meaning, as you said, John, you know, he wants to get this done. He wants to get it done before reelection. Uh, and it's been dragging on for a long time. You have that combined with with the pure economic set of issues and you know what what would be objectively the best type of trade situation to to come out of this with so uh, i think we at least have to look very carefully at what the administration agrees to given these reports that uh Mnuchin and lighthizer have walked back on on certain demands that we made about support for soes uh about um uh, uh intellectual property rights and the like and and not simply say well look we got an agreement and that's the best way to go so in some ways you know this is this remains part of a larger process john in other ways i mean maybe this is the crucial week and and after friday everything's going to change either the president will no longer be credible the chinese will have agreed to a very significant deal or uh we will get a deal that really doesn't f- alter the fundamentals of what we want to see altered and therefore the chinese will walk away saying look we took the the most that the americans were willing to throw at us and we came out fairly unscathed so uh, this is an important week I agree, and you wonder uh, what the future looks like. And sometimes uh, I worry uh, that the administration sort of looks at all these things kind of piecemeal, rather than having an overall trade strategy that sort of links to grand strategy. And and, and the way that I th- I, the problem is, I think they went about it backwards. They, I think what they, I think they should have 
signed the Asia TTP, you know, the deal that would have uh, incorporated the U.S., Japan, Australia, our allies in Southeast TPP, Asia. right? Yeah. Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah, TPP, yeah. sorry. <laughs> right, TPP. And then uh, gone to Europe and tried to, uh, you know, lower trade barriers with Europe and come up with a common front uh, against China, much as the TPP is. And then gone to China and, with all our allies together and say, look, you have to correct the ways you, – you, you mentioned many of them. You should not just the stealing of intellectual property but the huge – Subsidies that go from the Chinese government to these state-owned enterprises, which are kind of, you know, which have allowed these inefficient, large inefficient businesses in China to keep operating and, and driving prices uh, lower and lower, but in a sort in a you know, sort of predatory way. So I think uh, if that so if, if since we didn't do it that way, and since we went, uh, we didn't sign the TPP, and then we provoked this clash with China first, and we've had these problems with Europe, which seem to be on the unresolved and are seem to be on the back burner right now. We have less bargaining leverage with China. So you could see some kind of compromise working like this. I think the second of your two options, Misha, that they, the U.S. and China reach a deal. Uh, it doesn't really address the hard structural problems of SOEs and intellectual property theft in a meaningful way, but China commits to Reducing the trade imbalance in some way, mostly by buying it sounds like soybeans, right, and agricultural products, and maybe more sneakers and iPods. Although they make all that stuff over there now, uh, and then I think uh, that maybe Trump thinks that's enough to get you through to the election, and then what that does it buys you enough time to go back to Europe, try to reach a deal with Britain also coming out of Brexit and with maybe go back to the TPP. You know, Trump pulled out, but then he's tweeted things that said, you know, if we made changes to the TPP, we could think about entering. Maybe we, we all this will be will, it will be an sorry, interim trade agreement that puts off some kind of grand bargain. But I think we still I hope our people in the in Washington are still keeping their eye on what the, the permanent strategy should be. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> I, I was waiting for you to transition oh, to Japan. Okay, so yeah, okay, like, now okay. I'll transition to Japan. I'll transition to Japan. Okay. I firmly agree with you. <laughs> Violently agree. Actually, I'm, I'm glad we actually touched on the TPP and Japan's leadership in the trade area. Actually, Japan's been quite a leader on free trade in the last few years where we have fallen back because it turns our focus to Misha's favorite country, Japan. And I mean, we've had a, a once-in-a-generation event just occur in Japan, the transition from uh, one emperor to the next. We had the abdication of Emperor Akihito, and the eldest son, Crown Prince Naruhito, has uh, succeeded him. Uh, Misha, what does this all mean? I mean, is the emperor now sort of just symbolic, uh, doesn't play – that much a role in politics? Do the Japanese really care or pay attention? Or are they actually more important, not in their real power, but in their symbolic power, uh, just like the uh, king and queen of England? What, what yeah. is the importance of this? 
Yeah, John, you mentioned uh, that this was a once-in-a-generation event. Actually, if you average it out, it is a once-in-a-three-generation event because this is the only the second uh, enthronement uh, of a uh, – or, or a session. The enthronement actually will take place later. I'll mention that. But the only the second accession uh, of a uh, an emperor in Japan in the last 90 years. And that, of course, is because Emperor Hirohito, the wartime emperor, reigned for 64 years. His son reigned for 30 years. So in 90, almost 95 years, we've only had, uh, we are now on our third emperor in Japan. And if you go back to the Meiji Restoration, the beginning of modern Japan in 1868, there have only been five emperors in 150 years. Last year was the 150th anniversary of the Meiji Restoration. There's only been five. So it actually is very significant. Um, In some ways, the emperor uh, maintains the link with uh, a much more traditional Japan and, and certainly the idea of a traditional Japan that's that's very important to a country that continues to change uh, that in the past, of course, was the first Asian country to modernize uh, and become uh, a, a country with a recognizably, as we would think of it, a recognizably modern or or Western, if you want to put it that way, society economy, government, and the like. Uh, and as all of that was happening in, in a very short space, and in actually in the case of, of roughly a generation, you know, the emperor was the lodestone for Japan. Now, of course, uh, he was very controversial uh, during the, the 20th century as, as the imperial system was used both to justify Japan's imperialism and its colonization of of countries including Korea and Taiwan uh, and the invasion of China, um, uh, but also for dramatic changes uh, in Japan, including uh, the development of a state Shinto system. Shinto is the indigenous religion in Japan, so there was basically a government control of religion up until 1945. Um, The Complete reordering of social classes, uh, which actually gave a lot of freedom to women uh, and peasants and the like, but also um, really ripped people away from very well understood traditional social hierarchies. All of this was done you know, in the name of the emperor. So after 1945, there was this incredible rupture in the middle of Hirohito's reign. Uh, after the war and the the imposition of uh, um, the American written constitution, the emperor went from, you know, essentially a living God and recognized as in some ways as such to a constitutional figurehead, a, a, a constitutional monarch. Now, the, after 1868, the emperor had not ruled Japan directly, but he was extremely influential. Um, after 1945, the emperor was very much like European monarchs, particularly the the, the Queen of England, um, which was a constitutional figurehead, but very important for the Japanese. Again, important in a sense of maintaining a recognizable and conscious connection with the past, um, but also for a symbol of the nation that was above politics. And I think, you know, for Americans, we don't often think about the importance of that because our president serves as both the head of our government, but also the head of state. In most other countries, you have a separation between the head of government and the head of state, which means the head of government can do the things that politicians have to do all the time. But the head of state can actually represent the nation. Here we have a, you know, we have a problem that if you're a Democrat and there's a Republican president, you probably don't see him as a legitimate head of the state, and and vice versa. But in Japan, the emperor has has been a a very significant um, 
pillar of the post-war Japanese system, giving it a legitimacy in in some very difficult times, not least of which has been the the 30 years of economic stagnation that began precisely when Emperor Akihito, the former emperor, now the Emperor Emeritus Akihito, took the throne. Uh, the emperors have also been important, by the way, John, uh, at least Akihito has been very important in uh, normalizing Japan's relations with uh, its former colonial uh, subjects, uh, the former colonized nations in Asia. He did a lot of foreign trips and to the extent that he could, isolated as he was from politics, Emperor Emeritus Akihito made very clear um, his views on the tragedy of the war and the cost and that he, he really pushed uh, again, as much as possible, a very pacifist line. So the current emperor, Emperor Naruhito, who's 59 years old, educated at Oxford, is a historian. His wife, Masako, the current empress Masako, of course, uh, was educated at Harvard and a diplomat. Um, they represent a new generation in Japan, a generation completely untainted by the war era. Uh, Emperor Akihito was born before the war, a decade before the war, and so was was connected, even though, of course, he didn't have anything to do with it. But now you have a completely new generation, a very, you know, very highly educated generation, educated abroad. And I think in some ways in Japan, they represent really the a sense of the final closing of the book on uh, the post-war period, uh, Japan's apologies for the post-war, its successful transition to uh, a trading state, uh, but one that that has uh, political influence and, and, in fact, some growing level of military influence in Asia. Uh, and yet the name of the new era, Reiwa, which means beautiful harmony, is clearly a sign that this is a government uh, with a new emperor that wants to focus on developing uh, the Japanese potential of, of each individual, as was expressed by the government uh, when they announced the new era name, and that they have an emperor who seems very much in the mold of his father, who who um, has also helped to humanize the imperial house, make it uh, more familiar in some ways and comfortable uh, in interacting with the people, and yet still an object of great veneration. So it's it's not insignificant at all, John, and, and it's going to be actually quite interesting to watch the country um, deal with, again, only the second emperor in, uh, I'm sorry, only the third emperor in 95 years, uh, and, and one who is, um, t- has taken over, so to speak, a Japan that is in a completely different place uh, domestically and internationally than it was when his father took over and certainly when his grandfather took over. You know, I I guess I'm going to display my American Republican uh, tendencies and I, I have the same attitude toward the British royal family too, which is why should the taxpayers spend tens of millions of dollars a year supporting this or anarchic, uh, not anarchic, this is the wrong word, anachronistic obsolete and now I think useless institution like a monarchy. So the question I have is would Japanese history since World War II really be any different if there – if you know MacArthur had decided, uh, you know, let's just abolish the royal family. You know, I wonder, you know, would would the British, if they look at their history since World War II, do they really think having Queen Elizabeth as queen really made a big – uh, difference, uh, even though a lot of people, they, maybe they pull in a lot of tourist dollars on it, and the you know who'd watch all these BBC miniseries about the royal family or on Netflix? 
uh, it was great entertainment. It's kind of like exporting, I, I don't know, some kind of cultural, uh, you know, cultural values, I suppose. But I don't see what the imperial family really does anymore in terms of benefiting a country, not just Japan, but any uh, country. I find it so, I, I, I don't get actually all these European countries like Spain, that, Spain brought it back. You know, uh, but you know, Italy doesn't have it. Germany doesn't have it. France doesn't have it. You know, the British. Have, I don't see where it makes any difference, except it seems to me to waste a lot of taxpayer dollars. And still, I, and, and here's the other more serious point: is it does sort of keep a kind of strange aristocratic hierarchy around. So I suppose the British still worry about their titles. They love being, you know, counts of this and dukes of that. Um, in America, the only Dukes we have are the Dukes of Hazard. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for them. But you know, and I bet in Japan they still, maybe because of the royal family, they care about you know their titles and proximity to the imperial family. But I don't know if that's altogether healthy in a democracy, a republic, or a republic. Well, it's you know, uh, it's a loaded question. First of all, I never realized you were such a radical Republican. You oh, I am. Here, <laughs> you. And and I'll be and I will betray my my monarchist tendencies, which is to I say that I, 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 I just you knew it, didn't you? Flush you out. <laughs> I, I I I think first of all the the role, and I'll speak about Japan. I can't speak about um, the UK, where they actually have commoditized the monarchy to a much, much greater extent than anything in Japan. There are no, you know, there are no series about, I mean, there's still, Japan does not have less majesty uh, the way that the Thais do, for example. And of course, we should also mention that the Thai king uh, was just crowned this week. And in fact, he he's the first king, new king in 70 years because his father reigned for 70 years. Um, but the Thais actually have a less majesty law. The Japanese don't formally um, but there is certainly a much greater sense of propriety around the imperial family than there is around Britain's royal family. And in, in part, that may be because the Japanese imperial family has acted better than the, the royal family in a lot of cases. You don't have the same types of scandals. Um, to your questions, there's a lot of them there. And I think they're actually quite important because, look, we're, we're at a point where Americans are, are you know, so deeply split uh, over government and and so deeply um, animated for or against presidents because they are political figures, even as heads of state, that, that I think this is actually quite serious thing to talk about. And I would say that in Japan, and the answer to your first question is, we don't know how Japan would have been different without the emperor, but it's fair to say that it probably would not have been nearly as smooth a transition in the post immediate post-war era 1945 through the the occupation ending in 1952 if MacArthur had abolished the monarchy. Now, it, it probably still would have gone through, but it could have been a lot bloodier and uh, with a lot less um, cooperation between Japanese and Americans and maybe lack of cooperation going forward. And quite frankly, I assume that, you know, counterfactually, if that had happened, then as soon as the Americans left in 1952, the Japanese would have put the imperial family right back uh, on, on the throne, just given the, you know, the more conservative nature of society. But that actually answers the second part of your question, I think, which is, uh, you know, why does it make a difference? I mean, the Japanese uh, are a very conservative society. That's you know, It's not a surprise. It's not essentialistic. It's not, you know, it's not saying that there's something unique about them, but they are they are, you know, comparatively conservative uh, with certainly very radical elements in society. Um, but that conservatism lends itself, I think, to monarchy and, and to the stability of monarchy versus the 
the free-for-all of democracy. And don't forget, Japan had democracy before 1945. It had a very flourishing democracy through the 1920s uh, and uh, beginning of the 1930s. And of course, a modified uh, parliamentary system stretching back to the late 1800s. But that also failed. It, the, the passions that it unleashed uh, of the, the socialists and the communists and the ultranationalists and the fascists uh, were something that, that could not be contained in, in Japan and led ultimately to the tragedy of, of the 1930s. Uh, and we haven't had that in a, uh, a actually a much more open Japanese democratic system since the 1940s. And I think, uh, I think in part that's because of the experience of the war, um, but also the way in which the emperor was depoliticized right in in the pre-war period you had an emperor of course but he was actually the the government was really in his name it was not in the name of the people the people weren't sovereign the emperor was post 1945 the people were sovereign uh and and again there was an american written constitution the emperor was a symbol but that symbol was very uh, was very important. And Japan went through its period of domestic terrorism in the early 1970s. It, it obviously went through the, the economic slowdown, as I've talked about, a continued economic slowdown. Um, and yet society has remained very, very stable. And and I, I think that there is there is a role that the imperial family, and particularly the emperor uh, himself, plays in maintaining uh, that level of stability and the willingness of people to put up with the messiness and the um, the suboptimal outcomes that you get in in a democracy. The, the last thing I would say, and this you know, this touches a little bit more on that essentialistic element of the question. But you say, you know, why does it make a difference? All I can tell you is something I was told uh, by by my mentor, who spent uh, as a historian many years looking at 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 these types of questions, and and was talking once with uh, a Japanese uh, scholar who, who you know and said basically the same thing. Why do you have an emperor? You know, why do you need an emperor today? And this was probably back in the the seventies or eighties. Uh, and the guy looked at him and said, uh, "Without an emperor, what's Japan?" I mean, this this is the world's oldest continuous monarchy. It goes back in 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 well attested recorded form to about the 600s. Um, it's not something to get rid of lightly. And in many ways, the identity of the Japanese, whether you're in a feudal period, whether you are in a, uh, a, a modernizing period, a radical democratic period, a constitutional monarchy, nonetheless can be tied up with this figure who performs regularly, unlike the queen, I think, performs regularly uh, rights for the country. Now, I have to say that there is, of course, separation of church and state. So the emperor does not do it as a symbol of state. He does it as a private citizen, but he's a unique private citizen. Everybody understands that when the emperor prays uh, to the gods for the prosperity of the country, when he plants and reaps the first harvest, it is done on behalf of the Japanese people. And and I think that there is a an important level of stability there that is to me different from what I see with the European monarchies. And I think it's expressed, and I've heard it expressed by Japanese as well. What are we without the emperor? Because only the emperor can do certain of these things. And if the emperor doesn't do it, the, the first grains to the sun goddess, for example, then no one can do it. That doesn't mean that people walk around every day thinking about this, but it also means that they know it's there and that they don't have to worry about yet another part of their understanding of Japan and the world 
being pulled out from underneath them and therefore having to come up with something different. It's not very easy to replace these types of social, mythological, historical structures. It's interesting. You know, just before we turn to our next, maybe last topic, I do find Japan is very interesting and it has this kind of mixture of traditionalism, you said, conservatism, wanting you know this desire to reach back to a past that goes back into time of myth and then uh you know robots <laughs> sony high technology you know some of the most cutting edge uh science uh, it's a really I, I think that's why it's such, i must be free why it's one of the most interesting societies to study is you have this you know you walk around downtown tokyo and you see all the latest high electronics available and their love of robotics and video games and software and computers. And then you see people, uh, you know, walking around in traditional clothes, right? It's a, it's a, it's an interesting society, but let me, let me, uh, let's, maybe we could close out the podcast or issue today by talking about one more, because I am a Republican, one more Republican uprising against hierarchy and, uh, the mistakes of hereditary leaders and, uh, tradition, which is we just uh, marked the hundredth anniversary of uh, the anniversary of the May Fourth uh, student protests uh, in China, uh, which uh, you may not have known it happened if you were in China, given uh, the amount of censorship that's occurring there. But you know, Misha, you were very interested in this. What what uh, what do you think about uh, the May Fourth uh, movement? Sometimes it's called, or at least the centennial and what does it still mean today yeah john it it happened over the weekend you're right if you're in china you probably didn't even know about it but it's a fascinating counterpart to what we were just talking about with japan so um the may 4th movement erupted uh from a group of a large group of students at peking university uh in 1919 who were protesting against the uh, news that had had finally reached china about concessions uh, that their representatives at the Versailles Peace Treaty ending World War I had made. So uh, these were concessions primarily over um, former uh, German colonial territory in China, Shandong in particular, that was being given to Japan by the World War I victors. And the, the students uh, felt that this was a national shame. It was an, a humiliation uh, that a new China should uh, and one that had had been at least you know nominally an ally in the war should uh, have a voice at the table, as they said, and not and not simply be treated as uh, a colonial object. Uh, and this, I think, we we uh, have to keep in mind, took place only eight years after the revolution. In China, the Chinese Revolution of 1911, which kicked out the Qing. So we were talking about in 1868, the Japanese had a restoration of imperial rule after 700 years of samurai rule. So the 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 um, the samurai, the Tokugawa samurai, were kicked out of power, and the emperor came back. In China, of course, the Qing, who had ruled for 300 years since 1644, were overthrown, and a new republican government 
came into power. But that Republican government very quickly broke down and, and China, by 1919, had descended into what is called the period of the warlords, warlordism uh, around um, around the country. And, and out of that, of course, rose both the um, uh, from the May 4th movement in particular arose the Communist Party founded in 1921, two years after May 4th. Uh, but then the the Guomindang government of of Sun Yat-sen and Chiang Kai-shek, uh, which became the the de facto governing uh, body, the governing uh, government of of China through 1949. So May Fourth takes place in a very different type of environment, where there already has been a successful revolution, but the succeeding government failed. Uh, and China was humiliated, it was prostrate, it was weak. Uh, and yet at the same time, there was this incredible fervor throughout China to complete the transition from a pre-modern foreign ruled monarchical system to a republican system. It was known as the the era of the new culture movement. So so before the May 4th movement, there had been years of, of um of ferment, intellectual ferment, and journals, and and uh, meetings, and the like, to try to create the new Chinese man, the new Chinese economy, the new Chinese government, all of this, and it all, in a, in a sense, comes to a head in May Fourth when the students realize that this this is a failure, uh, and China is no closer to becoming or regaining its position as a as a powerful, respected nation state. And so this then spreads to a wide, uh, a widespread uh, work stoppage, a strike uh, in later spring. Uh, and this this basically creates a a crisis throughout the country. Um, uh, you know, pro- the protests and riots are put down, they spread, they pop up. Um, but probably most significantly, and certainly in the the mythology of the Chinese Communist Party is that the May 4th movement and its demands for a, a reform policy and liberalization that will actually answer the needs of the people g- helps give rise to the to the Chinese Communist Party, which, as I mentioned, uh, is formed in, in 1921. The irony of today is that today's Communist Party, and by the way, all through 19 from 1949 up until, you know, just today, basically, the Chinese Communist Party continued to celebrate May 4th and, and talk about its importance as a revolutionary moment, as the sparking of revolutionary fervor. Um, it, it's been used by both sides, by the way. In 1989, it was used by the students in Tiananmen Square, uh, who actually held a major um, a major demonstration or counter demonstration, I guess you could call it, uh, celebrating the 70th anniversary of uh, of the May 4th movement in Tiananmen Square. That really kicked off that month's worth of demonstrations and protests that resulted uh, in on June 4th in the, the tragic massacre in Tiananmen Square. But now the irony is that, of course, you have a communist government under Xi Jinping that is doing everything it can to tamp down revolutionary fervor to tamp down, of course, any expression of dissatisfaction with uh, the the status quo. Um, You kicked off the segment by mentioning how little celebration there was of it in China. That's absolutely right. There there were very few, uh, very few official comments about it. There was something that Xi Jinping said about a week ago talking, talking to students, but really the message to them was you have to support the state. You know, the state is, of course, the uh, the embodiment ultimately of these these dreams and hopes that came out of May 4th. But the government's gone farther than that. They've been arresting students, ironically. Right. May 4th was a student movement. And and an irony of ironies, um, 
in the last couple of weeks, uh, a, a cadre of Peking University students have been arrested because they had uh, tried to go and, and show some solidarity and do some type of joint activities with laborers. Again, irony. And if you look historically, of course, it was workers and students that precipitated the May 4th movement. In today's China, the government is doing everything it can to make sure that you have no repetition of that, and of course, the real reason I think for that is their fear of of the the 30th anniversary of Tiananmen Square, which is coming up next month, which is something that we will certainly talk about at that point in time. Yeah, I would just uh, one or two observations. One is, as you pointed out, there is the 30 minute. I'm sorry, what did I say? 30 minutes. That's a, I'm on Trump time. Sorry, 30 year anniversary of Tiananmen Square also coming up, which was in 1989. And it does underscore the you know both the um, May 4th and the Tenement Square does, sort of, to me anyway, uh, point out how important students are, uh, college university students are in uh, the history of these kind of protest movements, uh, calling out the national leaders. Uh, you know, there's a similar uh, history in Korea. Um, I don't know if you see it the same in Japan, but other Asian societies, you see these, you know, the sort of students have this kind of role, uh, which uh, it might seem remarkable, I think, to American – maybe the only closest analog would have been uh, the, the Vietnam War protests of the uh, mid and late 1960s in the United States, which really haven't, uh, you know, haven't been replicated in American politics since. And I, and I think that's interesting. But then as you say, the second thing is I, I don't know if uh, Chinese students would play that same role again. Uh, you know, One, as you point out, because of the – Sort of growing surveillance of by the Chinese government of every part of Chinese society and the heavy police state uh, police state that uh, Xi Jinping is putting into place. Uh, but the same thing is, it might be that Chinese students themselves are not interested in that anymore. Um, the Chinese students, you know, will probably privately tell you they share a lot of the same aspirations and hopes that the student protesters from 1989 or 1919 held, but I, it's, I think they're not going to put their lives on the line to try to achieve uh, you know, political and social change in China for the better. I think the students I've uh, you know, met or um, come across are, are very interested in making their lives better, and a lot of them want to move to the United States and the West because they don't like the political repression going on at home. But I also don't detect in them uh, the idea, which I've seen others, is, oh, I'm going to go back to China and become, uh, you know, something like a, a, a person who's going to try to change the system. They all, I think, my sense is they all want to work uh, within the system. Uh, and so maybe, you know, what Xi Jinping has been trying to do is actually uh, working. If his main objective has been to prevent a future where students play this kind of revolutionary role that they have in the past. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, right. Um, and I, you know, I'll be honest. One thing I, I I don't know if we actually know how much. I think you're certainly um, uh, have have your finger on something that we're trying to understand, which is in part after after 40 years of of modernization and and integration with the world. You know, how do Chinese students now? Uh, and, and Chinese youth think about their role in the world. And I think it's actually different. You know, 40 years ago, a weak China, those who came back from abroad really did want to, 
you know, try to, you know, make China great again. And, and now they come back from United States or Europe or wherever, and they come back to a very a much wealthier China on the whole. Certainly a lot of them are going back to cities and they see a leading China and they probably don't feel the same urge to try to change China in a way that would make it more like the West. The other reason, of course, is that we've, we, you know, today we've got 300,000 Chinese students studying in the United States. We've had numbers like that for years and years now. And, and our great hope was that, well, these students would go back and, and, and be so besotted with American style liberalism and democracy that they would demand change at home. And we obviously that has not happened. So trying to understand actually how many of them do go back what they go back and do what what are there any types of political activities that they even try to take in a very repressive authoritarian uh, environment under Xi Jinping I mean these are these are a lot of the questions John I think we haven't asked about China because we've all been focused for so long on a strengthening and growing China and what we really need to do is look at a China that has a lot of social problems rifts dissatisfactions uh, resentment of the government and and the party and the like, and and ask a different set of questions that would help us understand things like this better. And you see it perhaps in in some small degree with the story about the Peking University students who were arrested. You know that they these were students who were actually taking the spirit of the May Fourth Movement to help uh, to create solidarity with workers and laborers and help you know try to make things better for them. And they were arrested by the government. So. There's a there's a different uh, it's a different China we're dealing with than I think we've we've that certainly that we thought we would have and one that we we felt we were um, moving towards and and I think that mandates a different set of questions and and hopefully you know you and I will be able to return to this next month as we get to the uh, the the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Well, that's a, I think that's a great way to uh, end uh, this issue of the Pacific Century podcast. So on behalf of uh, Misha, uh, I'm John Yu, and I'd like to thank all of you for joining us and look forward to speaking again next month. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.